Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you from downtown Memphis. Once again, this will be with episode 18 and it'll be the undercover federal game waterfowl bus. It's an unusual title and you know, most of our history and even including myself, we don't write much about the old federal game wardens. So this episode is going to be about them and there were some really unique characters that uh, became undercover agents and that's what we're going to cover today. So let's get started. Dwindling populations of migratory waterfowl during the late 1920s and early to mid-1930s aroused concerns of sportsmen across the country. The president selected a special U.S. Senate Committee on Conservation of Wildlife Resources, which conducted hearings in Washington on April the 4th through the 6th, 1932. Witnesses blamed the decline on drought in the breeding grounds spring shooting, market hunting, baiting, and live decoys. Two years later, the U.S. Game Protectors, as federal game wardens were called, received the new title of U.S. Game Management Agents. At the first conference of game management agents of the Biological Survey held in Chicago during September 1935, game management agent John Perry presented a program to his federal agents entitled Buying Ducks in Illinois Valley Undercover. Agents attending that meeting were convinced that undercover operations had great potential in wildlife law enforcement. In 1936, Larry Marafa, the agent in Charles, of Louisiana's game management agent, and who prior to being transferred to New Orleans, was stationed in Memphis. He received a request for help from the Tri-State Game and Fish Association headquartered in Memphis. The request centered on the illegal sale of wildfowl, especially waterfowl. Marokba recommended to the association that the agency bring in an undercover operative to evaluate the situation, and if after his initial evaluation, an operation should be needed and undertaken, the United States Game Management Agency assigned to the task would live in the Memphis area until the operations ended. There was just one problem. At that time, the agency had no money to conduct such an operation, and the undercover operative would have to foot the bill out of his own pocket. This at a time of the lingering effects of the Great Depression. So the Tri-State Game and Fish Association, along with the American Wildlife Institute, agreed to pay his expenses and salary. To conduct the undercover investigation in Memphis, an area, Morocco brought in Cecil D. Pettifer in the fall of 1936, who he had employed as a full-time undercover operative in 1935. It didn't take Pettifer long to realize it would require extra help. So an expert with an experience, John Perry, alias Dopey, arrived from Peoria, Illinois, where he saw that district. I might add here that John Perry, whose alias was Dopey, he set up a sting undercover operation for game, especially waterfowl, in the Illinois area of Peoria. And he assumed the alias of Dopey because he dressed as a bum on the streets and peddled his game to the those trying to buy game. For nearly two years, U.S. Biological Survey game management agents, Pettifer and Perry, with the assistance of the Tri-State Game and Fish Association, a group of interested Memphis sportsmen, 
bought ducks, geese, woodcocks, and quail from 50 market hunters operating in the Mid-South. During the final stages, state game wardens from Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee assisted in a gathering information on the traffic. When the investigation ended in 1938, it was described as one of the largest game sting busts ever, with numerous market hunters arrested in the three states and charged with violation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the Lacey Act. Testifying in Federal District Court in Memphis on October the 4th, 1939, Pettifer said, I estimate I got no more than 10% of the birds which were sold on the Memphis market. They are shot and also shipped to New Orleans and Chicago and had been shipped as far as New York. In this capacity, Pettifer and Perry took on those shrewd, active, lawless men who were responsible for marketing an illegal waterfowl. True pioneers joined later by other federal agents. They effectively infiltrated market hunters, hotels, restaurants, and other establishments that were buying and serving migratory game birds. Afterwards, undercover operations continued to be conducted in migratory bird hotspots located in Illinois, Missouri, Louisiana, California, and the eastern shore of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. In 1939, a large undercover operation was conducted by the U.S. Game Management Agency along the eastern shore of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. Sixty-eight bootleggers were arrested for buying, selling, and trapping ducks, 25 in Maryland, 10 in Delaware, and 33 in Virginia. It would be several years before another undercover operation occurred, with World War II having a lot to do with that. In 1951, there was only one undercover operative in the United States. In 1952, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service employed only two full-time undercover operatives and for the first time called them criminal investigators. Along with their wives and children, they were required to live under assumed names while pretending to be salesmen, photographers, and you name it. One of the two operatives were Anthony Mark Spano, whose alias was Tony. So we're going to be talking about Stony, Tony Stefano, who went to Washington in 1936 as secretary to Minnesota's Congressman John Bernard. He studied law at night and returned to St. Paul, where he received his law degree. His investigative work began with the Minnesota Game and Fish Commission in 1931 which provided him with a general background for his future investigative work. Here, Stefano cut his investigative eye teeth, trapping wardens who were trading whiskey to the Native Americans for furs and fish. From 1936 to 1941, he was an investigator with the Federal Housing Authority. During World War II, he was with the War Food Administration in Minnesota. In 1950, he was employed by the Department of Labor as an investigator. In April 1952, he switched to the Department of Interior for his first undercover assignment with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, serving as one of two special criminal investigators for market hunting. Until that time, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service had been attempting to control the duck racket with regular patrols known as flying squadrons of agents brought in from other areas. 
an awkward system of paid informants and sporadic undercover work. Flying Squad's activities were a joint effort between the United States Fish and Wildlife Service and state fish and game commissions. Together, they organized undercover operations. One such raid, headed by Stefano, was conducted at Realfoot Lake, which began in 1953, when 26 men, mostly guides, were charged and tried in federal court for the illegal sale and our possession of ducks. Thirty undercover agents, both federal and state, posing as wealthy sport duck hunters, worked on the case for three years. The first to be tried, and those who uh, know the Realfoot Lake history will recognize these names, the first to be tried was Jim Hutchcraft, Obine County resident, a Realfoot Lake guide and market hunter, who pleaded guilty to selling 54 ducks to state and federal undercover agents. He was sentenced to six months in prison. His son James of Samberg, which ratted to uh, Realfoot Lake, was fined $200 for aiding and abetting. Two other well-known guides arrested were Sammy D. Applewhite and William Red, his alias was Red, so William Red Hutchcraft, along with Floyd Hayes, cafe and boat dock operator. In an ironic twist, one year after the prosecution of these cases, seven state game wardens of the Tennessee Flying Squad received a warrant for their arrest from the deputy of Vine County. A tug-of-war occurred over who had jurisdiction, state or federal. Finally, the seven game wardens who assisted in the operation was tried in federal court at Jackson, Tennessee, for possession of whiskey in the dry county of Obine. The surprise indictments came shortly after the undercover operatives made the series of unpopular arrests as most Obine and Lake Counties, and those were the two counties that encompassed uh, Realfoot Lake. So the Obine and Lake County residents were sympathetic with those charged, as that was the only way most of them could make a living, and they wanted retaliation. The charge was that the undercover agents were instructed to carry bottles of whiskey while posing as hunters because professional guides and market hunters suspected any hunter who didn't drink or have whiskey as being either a, either a preacher or a game war. The case went in front of juries and all were found not guilty. Between 1952 and 1961, acting as a lone wolf in the campaign to eliminate unlawful duck slaughter, numerous unfortunates sold Tony Stefano over 21,000 ducks during four major undercover campaigns. For some of his masquerades, he habitually wore an uncreased Charlie Chan-type hat to hide his bald head. For his first assignment, beginning in 1952, he was sent to the Services Region 1, comprising the states of Oregon, Washington, Nevada, California, Idaho, and Montana. Using his real name since no one knew him, Stefano began a two-year investigation of a market hunting ring, mainly in the Sacramento Valley. His cover would be in the disguise of a traveling freelance wholesale jewelry salesman. He prepared for his role by reading numerous books on gemology and visited wholesale jewelry businesses in San Francisco until the language of diamond merchants was second nature to him. Here he even attended the funeral of one of the biggest market hunters, 
as he knew many of his market hunting friends would be there and they would remember me as being one of the mourners, as he said. D-Day, in quotation, was the code name for their operation, which stood for, in quotation, Duck Days. D-Day occurred on March the 1st, 1954, a sweeping raid three years in the making. It was described as the largest mass apprehension of market hunters in California history. The investigation led to the arrest of 28 members of the Sacramento Valley market hunting ring. When his assignment ended in 1954, he moved to Houston for his next assignment with wife Ruth and their son, Anthony Mark Stefano Jr., there renting a five-room frame bungalow in the suburban Bel Air district. Here it was estimated that 200,000 waterfowl had been illegally marketed for the past two years, and if continued another five years would have reduced the central flyway duck numbers in half. Once more, his ruse was that of a wholesale jewelry salesman, where on the Gulf Coast he made the assertions that he had connection with a market for eagle birds in Las Vegas. In April 1956, deciding it was time to end the charade, in six wealthy southeastern counties, 60 U.S. United States game management agents from eight states directed by Larry Morocca, at that time Albuquerque's general supervisor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, staged the most extensive raid in the service's history. Each agent received a phone call from their supervisor informing them to check in to a given hotel in Houston by the evening of April the 13th. No explanation was given to the agents. Each was to bring their firearm and a suit, and that's a dress suit because the U.S. Game and Fish Commission did not have a uniform at that time. They were to be prepared to stay for several days. The next day, the 60 or so gathered in a large conference room in the morning. Morokpa impressed upon them the secrecy of the soon-to-take-place operation in which they were to participate. Essentially, none in the room knew of or about the Candlestein effort. He explained that undercover agent Stefano had engaged for two years in investigating and infiltrating a loosely-knit group of illegal duck shooters, sellers, and buyers along the Beaumont, Houston, and Galveston coast. This operation received much publicity in newspapers afterwards and outdoor magazines such as Sports Illustrated, Phil and Stream, and Air Outdoor Life. Murawka had an eminent reputation and was respected by all. He had become a U.S. Deputy Game Warden in 1924 after having acted as an informant to federal game wardens soon after the Migratory Bird Treaty Act became law in 1918 with one aspect of the act banning spring shooting, which was very unpopular in his hometown area of southern Illinois. Little did the act deter the market hunters in the area, so Morocco became very unpopular in his community. Stefano and Morocco said at the morning meeting that they would be divided into two-man teams, each to serve arrest warrants beginning at a given hour the next morning, April the 14th and take them into custody and transport them to Houston for arraignment. They were to be jailed pending bail. At an afternoon meeting, they met with U.S. Marshals, Texas Wildlife Wardens, Texas Rangers, U.S. District Attorneys, and the two-man teams, with Stefano going into great detail. They felt fortunate because their unmarked federal cars 
had just had the newfangled mobile radios installed. The evidence that Stefano had purchased 3,000 illegally killed ducks led to the arrest of 53 market hunters who were accused of killing an estimated 100,000 birds in the past two years for clients who paid up to $5 a carcass for choice birds. He was the government's only witness. Most were cocky, with some saying, never mind the wardens. We know what they're doing every minute. We keep a tail on them whenever we are working. However, after the trial, Morocco remarked, too many people find this an easy way to make a fast buck. This may help take the dollar sign off of geese and duck. All either pleaded guilty or were convicted, fined, and put on probation. They range from rice farmers, oil field workers, plumbers, grocers, high school students, ranch hands, restaurant owners, convicts, town constables, and hunting guides. The whole operation came off without a hitch, but ended quicker than desired because there was mounting fear that Stefano's cover had been blown and his safety jeopardized as well as that of his family who lived in the Houston suburb. Stefano remarked about one of his hunts with a market hunter. We would go hunting at five or four or even two in the morning. One foggy dawn, as we squatted in a rice field, the market hunter said offhandedly, You know, I'd rather kill a federal man than take the rap for shooting ducks for market. Quietly, I answered, Look, if you think there's an agent working this country, let's get the hell out of here. You know I've been handling 100 to 150 ducks at a time. Some market hunters baited and shot from blinds. Others stalked the birds and fired point blank into setting flock. However, the method used most often in California and Texas was called the drag, where three or four market hunters during a full moon spread out 15 yards from each other on the perimeter of a rice field, holding sometimes up to 50,000 ducks that were feeding. The market hunter in the center clapped his hands or fired one shot. As the ducks rose, they unloaded not only unplugged guns, but in many cases with long toms, as they were called, which consisted of a shotgun that had an extended magazine holding 10 or 12 shots. The shots were fired in an arc into the center of the concentration. Sometimes as many as 1,000 to 1,500 ducks were killed in this manner of seconds. In California, a small syndicate offered to dynamite a pond holding 3,000 ducks. By wrapping shot around a stick of dynamite, they slaughtered the whole bunch either from the shot or the concussion. As Stefano's reputation and name spread nationwide in newspapers and magazines, in the summer of 1956, for his third assignment, for the first time he assumed an alias, Mark DiMarco. Even his car registration, driver's license, and hunting license bore that name. His 16-year-old son was known to his classmates as Leo DiMarco. At this time, he was the only undercover operative in the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. His front this time was as a traveling attic louver salesman for the Minneapolis Louver Manufacturing and Supply Company. Minnesota sportsman Delbert Belden, president of the Louver Manufacturing and Supply Company, helped Stefano move to East Peoria as an agent for the firm. Only he knew Stefano's real identity and intentions, and he quickly taught him the ins and outs of the trade. 
Stefano also sold Impsco shotgun chokes on the side. In June 1956, he moved with his family to East Peoria into a neat little house and puttered around the city and countryside in the station wagon, selling mostly louvers and a few chokes. To his neighbors, he was considered addicted to alcohol and bars a little too much. To the bar patrons, he was known as a fast man with a buck. Gradually, he worked himself into confidence of those selling waterfowl, with most of his time spent in the Peoria, Beardstown, and Quincy area of Illinois, the St. Clair Flats area of Michigan, and between Perry Duchenne and La Crosse in Wisconsin. In the meantime, the company president entertained numerous phone calls, asking, indeed, if he was a salesman. And likewise, dealers received calls asking if they were doing business with DeMarco. A corrupt Illinois assistant attorney general called the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and asked if they had an undercover agent working in his state. Assured they didn't, DeMarco was cleared by the Illinois underworld, with business commencing soon thereafter with the mob in Chicago, Cicero, and Calumet City in Illinois. In early 1957, there was a regular organization of the Fish and Wildlife Service with a covert operation downgraded so that Stefano was the only one doing so. It stayed that way until 1961. In August 1958, he sold his house and vanished along with his family. That's the end of the Illinois operation. Shortly thereafter, arrest warrants were issued for 96 market hunters. At secret rendezvous points, agents gathered before dawn on September the 5th to begin arresting violators in three Midwestern states. For his work, he received a $750 Superior Performance Award from the Department of the Interior. For his fourth escapade, starting in the fall of 1958, for two and a half years, Stefano assumed the fictitious name of Joe Greco, conducting undercover operation in the southeastern region of the United States as an illiterate, it, no, not illiterate, <laughs> itinerant wholesale peanut salesman working for the Sachs Nut Company of Minneapolis, which had a branch office at Dublin, North Carolina. Here he spent three days learning the trade of salesmen. Market hunters made it their business to know where a warden was at all times, and they had their own way of finding out. They went to great pains to study federal agents and took notes of their appearances, what kind of shoes and clothes they wore, and the cars they drove, and where they lived. Consequently, he sold his station wagon and bought a Cadillac, since he wanted to improve his disguise as a well-to-do traveling salesman. And he knew that Morgan Hunters had never seen a federal law enforcement man drive such an expensive car. He moved his family to Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, where they lived under fictitious names in a rented house. Here his son eventually graduated from high school as Leo Greco and even registered for the draft and got his marriage license under that name. Stefano made routine rounds of country stores, restaurants, taverns, bars, and dance halls, peddling peanuts and gaining the confidence of those who took part in the illegal sale or killing a waterfowl. He wasn't home much, traveling and making 234 purchases and conducting 325 investigations in five states, 
at considerable personal risk and sacrifice. Mrs. Stefano kept copious notes for him and accurate records of every item he bought, tagging each and consigning them to cold storage units as evidence. He made the purchases only during the legal hunting season. There can be no let-up in caution when working a case. Every word and act must be right, and it can be quite difficult to lead several different lives at once in far-flung places, he said. He continued, a slip-up could be disastrous. During this time, he was once asked, I sure hope you ain't a federal agent. The peanut man braced himself and replied, Well, now, I sure hope there ain't any G-man around here. I've been buying a few ducks myself, and I can't afford to get caught. Once he was forced to do some fast talking when questioned on a lonely road in the middle of the night after his name was found in a notebook dropped in the home of duck trappers by state game wardens. Once, as Stefano held some ducks secreted in sacks, the person who sold them to him warned, You know, you could be a game warden. If anything goes wrong and I get in trouble, I'll kill you. I'll come gunning for you no matter where you are. In another incident, peanut salesman Greco crouched in a duck blind with a hunter who calmly said, You know, I'd rather kill a fed than a duck. Take a place like this. It would be easy. Just hold a gun under his chin and blow his head off. Stefano exposed a deputy sheriff once who, for $50 a week, was monitoring radio calls of state game wardens so that market hunters would know where they were and what they were doing and could plan their own operations accordingly. Secret telephone conversations took place under code names late at night as Stefano kept his hearers informed of his progress. Lonely meeting places were set up for him to turn his ducks and geese over to other agents for storage as evidence. Much of the Arkansas waterfowl made its way to Memphis to be stored in refrigerated warehouses for future evidence. One of the largest waterfowl undercover efforts ever began simultaneously on May the 5th, 1961 at exactly 5.30 a.m. when 45 U.S. game management agencies from 13 southeastern states plus regional supervisor Larry Marakba of Albuquerque and Frick H. Davis of Minneapolis, together with state conservation officers from the five states, took part in the mass arrest in what proved to be the nation's biggest raid ever of its kind. All were locked in their hotel rooms overnight and hustled out in the early morning hours to make the arrest. 161 were arrested. Louisiana, 81. Arkansas, 54. Maryland, 15. Virginia, 6. North Carolina, 5. For Maryland, Stefano said, I only had a month or two to work this area. If I had had two years as I did in some areas, I could have made a minimum of 100 arrests. His buying activities in Maryland took him to Harvard de Grace, Golden Hills, Cambridge, and Smith Island. He supplied so much information in Arkansas and Louisiana that several buses were needed to transport violators to court. The buses served as confinement before the bootleggers were transported to a permanent jail. The buses were stationed at isolated sites on country roads or country stores. In Louisiana, four suspects were aboard boats operating in the Gulf of Mexico and were pursued for arrest. In Arkansas, Stuttgart and Manila, and that's Big Lake, areas were the center of Arkansas duck hunting trafficking. At Stuttgart, 
The largest purchase of 295 ducks involved Nolan Isbell and his wife and Tony Zerlingo of Carlisle. And at Big Lake, Ivy Lee, alias Lefty Grissom of Mark Tree, 212 ducks. He was convicted and sentenced to 90 days in jail. And I might add here that uh, Grissom was a market hunter, a long-term market hunter. And after he was jailed, he went to become the caretaker of the Chase Hunting Club, which was located just east of Waldenburg, Arkansas, or just south of Wallace Claypool's Wild Acres near Wiener. Stefano even arrested several Stuttgart firemen who were hiring a fellow fireman to pick their birds, who himself, on a regular basis, employed a dozen helpers using the firehouse for a picking room. He found six large sacks of waterfowl down and feathers. He was told that the sacks represented about 1,500 ducks, with the feathers and down being sold to companies making pillows and mattresses. Grisham had been arrested for selling ducks in 1954 in the Mark Tree area of the Sunk Lands by state game wardens and the assistance of Deputy U.S. Game Warden Nash Buckingham, who I'm sure most of the readers, if they're middle-aged or old-timers, know Nash Buckingham. Nevertheless, when Stefano was assigned to this undercover operation, he was advised to look up Grisham as the word was that he was still market hunting. He followed through and began buying ducks from him. Plus, after getting Grisham's confidence, Stefano had Grisham introduce him to the right people in the Big Lake area, which he did. Grisham bragged to his market hunting friends that Peanut Man was a good guy because he had never seen a federal man drive a Cadillac. The Daily Times headline Salisbury, Maryland read, Peanut Salesman Curves Duglegging on Eastern Shore. Stefano, as in Arkansas and Louisiana, posed as a peanut salesman, gaining the confidence of service station operators, restaurant owners, tavern keepers, bartenders, hotel owners, and others while peddling his peanuts throughout Maryland, North Carolina, and Virginia. More than 5,000 wild ducks and geese were purchased for evidence. Some 1,902 were bought in Arkansas. The waterfowl involved in these transactions was taken by various methods, including trapping, night hunting, and baiting. Tony Zerlingo, which I mentioned earlier, Stuttgart, a rice miller and restaurant operator, said Stefano encouraged him to sell the ducks illegally. This was at his court proceedings. When the trial opened in Little Rock, Stefano testified to buying thousands of ducks from Zerlingo and other Arkansans during the undercover operation. Most of the 54 persons arrested in connection with his, his evidence pleaded guilty, and only eight went to trial. Judge Gordon Young consolidated their cases. Zerlinger was convicted on 14 counts of selling ducks and seven counts of possessing more ducks than the limit, while the other seven were convicted. Stefano said, You can be sure they will have nothing to do with peanuts. Many of them couldn't remember my alias, Joe Greco, so they simply called me that damn peanut man. A market hunter lamented, I never want to see another peanut and a peanut man again as long as I live. As for Stefano, he received his second Superior Performance Award in 1962 and a $750 check. After Stefano's sensational buzzay of the bootlegging ring, a national outdoor magazine carried a photograph with a caption saying, 
Here is Anthony Stefano, the man who cracked the black market ring in Texas. However, the man pictured was not Stefano, but as prearranged by Stefano and others, the man was some obscure individual whose picture was garnered from a dusty file. Stefano would not allow anyone to take his picture. Thus, his identity was safe and he was ready to begin his next operation, but it never came. Even today, when one is in the Big Lake or Stuttgart area and brings up the peanut man, it sends a cold chill down the spine of many of the old-timers. He's a feared legend at Big Lake and Stuttgart. Stefano had a wonderful memory and kept extraordinary, well-organized and detailed records. Some said the effects of a few beers sharpened his memory. Some agents suggested that if he were placed into police lineup and were told that one was a dangerous mafia figure, who would they pick? Tony, of course. He simply looked the part. After his first undercover operation ended in 1961, two undercover operations were hired, and Stefano testified before the Merchant Marine and Fisheries Subcommittee of the U.S. House of Representatives. The hearing was held on the United States Fish and Wildlife Service's request for additional personnel to enforce federal game laws. Stefano told committee that in nine and a half years of work, he had purchased 31,000 ducks and geese and 354 market hunting cases. The average cost per bird was $1.35, and $28,350 were expended for the purchases of the evidence. What shocked the committee, however, was Stefano's estimate that his purchases probably represented only about 1% of the market hunting operations in the country. He recommended the number of enforcement agents be increased from 138 to 220 and the number of undercover agents from 2 to 12. Asked how the market hunters operated, he said they are very smart. Very often they use different automobiles and even switch license plates on these automobiles. Some of them use alias names. They know and figure the odds and percentages of chance of getting caught by strategically planning each hunt. A day or two in advance, when they are ready to make a big kill, they surveil the local game wardens and our agents and their locale where they're going to market hunt. They even bribe deputy sheriffs to keep them informed. Stefano went on to supervise the service's covert operations. In 1962, under him, the U.S. Fish and Lyle Wildlife Service had five agents. Afterwards, despite numerous successful undercover investigations, the Fish and Wildlife Service criminal investigators and its operations was abandoned in the late 1960s, but reinstated 10 years later. What might have happened had it not been for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? Fortunately, countless men and women devoted their lives to protecting the nation's wildlife resources thereby preserving our sporting heritage for future generations. Their endeavors were nothing short of extraordinary and would be felt well into the present century. Without them, how barren and dead indeed would be the woodsy solitudes and flowering meadows and the reverberating with life wetlands if the countryside was ungraced by so much as a single sign of wildlife to gladden the spirits and charm the eye. That would be the true cost of failure. In 1961, when Stefano appeared before the Merchants Marine 
and Fishing Subcommittee of the United States House of Representatives, which I mentioned just a few minutes ago, regarding increasing the number of undercover operatives, a senator remarked, I have read about this gentleman on many occasions, and I did not think I would ever have the privilege of meeting him. I am only sorry that there are no more Stefanos. He died April 10, 1993, in McLean, Virginia. We owe much to the dedicated wildlife enforcement officers like John Perry, Larry Romoka, and Tony Stefano, who put their lives at risk for the cause of waterfowl conservation. And folks, that really ends episode 18. And these were some remarkable characters, uh, rarely reported on in any kind of magazine or newspaper. And I'd like to give credit for people who helped me put this together. And that would be David Hall, who wrote the history of the United States Fish Wildlife Service Wildlife Undercover Investigation in 1989. And he also, uh, to the uh, U.S. United States Fish and Wildlife Service historian Mark Madison, who heads up the uh, museum and library area of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in uh, West Virginia there. I went there and visited him, and Mark was very gracious with me, along with David Hall. So I give great credit to those two gentlemen, David Hall and Mark Madison. I'm going to end this episode with a poem by William Cullen Bryant. It was completed in 1815 and published in 1818 and is entitled To a Waterfowl. And as this poem is being read, know that it's a narrator is questioning where the waterfowl is going. The narrator questions his motive for flying. He warns the waterfowl that he could possibly find danger traveling alone. But this waterfowl is not alone. What William Cullen Bryant is saying throughout this poem is that throughout our life, wherever we go, God is going to be with us, guiding us down the right path. And in times when we think we must go along, He too will be with us then. He never leaves us long enough for us to fall just long enough for us to learn from what we do. So listen to this poem, To a Waterfowl. Whither miss falling dew while glows the heavens with the last steps of day, far through their rosy depths does thou pursue their solitary way. Vainly the fowler's eye might mark their distant flight to do thee wrong, as darkly painted on the crimson sky their figure floats alone. Seekest thou the marshy brinks of weedy lakes or marge of river wide, or where the rocking billows rise and sink on the chaffed ocean side? There is a power whose care teaches thy way along their pathless coasts, the desert and limbless air, long wanderings but not lost. All day their wings have fanned at that far height the cold thin atmosphere. Yet stoop not weary to the welcome land through the dark of night is near. And soon that toil shall end. Soon shall thou find a summer home and rest and scream among my thou fellows. Reeds shall bend soon over thy sheltered nest. Thou art gone, the depth of heaven has swallowed up their form. Yet on my heart deeply hath sunk the lessons thou hast given and shall not soon depart. He who from zone to zone Guide through the boundless skies of certain flights, in the long way that I must tread alone, will lead my steps aright. For episode 19, I'm going to do a story on 
two octogenarians in their duck hunting. And I think you're going to enjoy this tremendously. So I close out and say God bless.